Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. <laughs> um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Chase Thomas podcast, where I'm still the aforementioned Chase Thomas coming to you live from Knoxville, Tennessee. Joining me up there in New York City, my good friend, Fangraphs.com Zone, John Taylor. John, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I am doing quite well. How about yourself? Not too bad, man. It's weird to just, there's the John face on YouTube.com slash Chase Thomas Podcast, because uh, of where John is, parts unknown, uh, video is not the best. So I'd rather have like great sound John Taylor than mm. choppy video John Taylor. Well, of course, that's you know that that that's the gold standard of podcasting is is good sound and no idea what the person on the other end looks like. <laughs> the the games change, man. It's it's amazing that you did that for years. It's it's also weird, uh, probably, to like think back uh, with my stuff for years, doing so many with people on Skype and not knowing what they looked like. Like just the cold calls and all the people that I've talked to extensively without ever mm. actually seeing their face. It's it's really weird. A very only the last 10 to 15 year phenomenon in human history. Yes, 100%. It's it's very strange. We can just interact with each other in a way where we just never learn what our what each other's faces look like. <laughs> I mean, you and I, we didn't know. For... No, we did we we did not know. We we spent the longest time basically on the ex- on an extended blind date. <laughs> Well, I appreciate uh, you continuing our courtship, John. Uh, it, it's uh, it's been a it's been a fun ride, and uh, too many more, John Taylor. Too many more dates, blind dates on this very program. Um, don't forget, folks. You can check us out on YouTube, YouTube.com/slash/ChaseMoodPodcast. New episodes up there every single day on uh, the video content uh, realm. So YouTube.com/slash/ChaseMoodPodcast. Like and subscribe. Also, uh, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast here on the Blue Wire Pod Network. Make sure you leave us a five-star rating and a review uh, if you can. It helps other people find the show, and it helps this very program continue to grow. So tell a, fan, a friend, family member, coworker, whoever about the Chase the Most Podcast and like episodes like this with John Taylor, uh, where we talk all things Major League Baseball on this very program. So do that today. You can get in touch with us uh, if you have any Major League Baseball questions for John or myself at Chase Thomas Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you guys as well. Uh, John, let's get into some actual baseball content uh, because the Braves uh, did not play in a doubleheader yesterday. The Mets are back up a half a game on the Atlanta Braves because the Pittsburgh Pirates uh, cannot do the right thing and uh, spoil the Mets' uh, week uh, series going on right now with uh, with the Mets and Pirates and then the Braves in Oakland uh, and what's going on there and the, the Matt Olson return. But uh, we're actually going to start your favorite division, John Taylor. Oh, God. Are we really talking about the AL Central again? We have to, John, because... <sighs> The top three teams. I don't know how like how much scrolling you do with the the baseball Twitter front uh, each and every day. Mm. White Sox fans <laughs> and Twins fans are miserable, John. They are so unhappy. Twins fans, I think, are more miserable than anyone in the in the race right now in the AL Central. Barely over five hundred, and yet they are and two yet. games out. Of the AL Central lead, John Taylor taping this on September 8th. Out of the three, my friend, 
who do you got in this? Who's going to win the AL Central? Because it is right there, and all the fan bases are quite sad that it's still just going on and nobody wants to win this division. Well, that's kind of the thing where it's like picking a favorite. It really just could be any of them at this point because they are all equally flawed and boring at this rate. <laughs> um, the Fangraphs odds still have Cleveland with the highest percentage chance of winning the division at 47.6, followed by the White Sox at 28.5 and the Twins at 23.9. Just based on the way things look now, it probably still remains Cleveland as the favorite, if only because I, I think what we've seen with Minnesota, beyond the fact that they still, for whatever cosmic reason, cannot beat the Yankees even when the Yankees are rolling out a triple-A lineup against them, they just have too many injuries. Uh, they lost Tyler Mele, I mean, recently one of their bigger deadline acquisitions, uh, to a shoulder injury that he's that has been bugging him on and off. It seems like for most of the second half, they lost Sonny Gray to an injury. Uh, they lost Byron Buxton to the injured list. They are, you know, th- this has been the case for the Twins all season. Just a bunch of injuries and being forced to. Uh, to make up that depth elsewhere, but it, there just does come a point where it just seems like there just is not enough left on this team, and it doesn't help that they have uh, guys like Joe Ryan struggling right now, that they are forced to play uh, Gilberto Celestino on the regular, that Carlos Correa really has just not uh, been the player I think that they both expected and needed him to be, that Nick Gordon is a regular in the lineup, although Nick Gordon's not a terrible player, but he's certainly, you know, the I mean, l- l- here's the full list of guys currently on the injured list for the Twins. <laughs> Ryan Jeffers, Miguel Sano, Jorge Polanco, Royce Lewis, Byron Buxton, Alex Kirilov, Trevor Larnack, Randy Dobnak, Kent Ameda, Tyler Mele, Bailey Ober, Chris Paddock, Jorge Alcala, Danny Colombe, John Romero, and Cody Stashak. And those are the guys, just the guys who are there right now, to say nothing of the guys who have been on and off that injured list throughout the season. Or the fact that their bullpen has really just been kind of a mess all season. You know, they've, they've let Emilio Pagan blow a lot of leads. Uh, you know, we, we saw it yesterday or yesterday in that first game, that doubleheader with Griffin Jacks. We saw it, you know, Michael Fulmer has not really been all that great for them uh, since being acquired from Detroit. I, I, I just don't think Minnesota has the pieces or the depth right now to kind of to keep going. And on top of that, they have, <clears throat> excuse me, they have a harder schedule the rest of the way than Cleveland does. Chicago has the hardest schedule the rest of the way of those three teams uh, in terms of just strength of schedule. I just, I, I don't really know what to make of them at this point. They're playing better, and I really love that it coincides with Tony LaRusso having to step away from the team for medical reasons, because it's becoming increasingly clear that Tony LaRusso seems to be the biggest problem in Chicago, um, hmm. and that they really do not, like, they really, that team really, really, really needs to make some kind of change in the offseason, at the very least LaRusso, and probably Rakan along with him, and I know we've been saying that one for a while, but... I don't know what to make of them at this point. I, I kind of, I give up with the White Sox. You know, I, I don't, who knows? Who knows at this point? They they alternate between dead and alive so constantly. And I think we've said before, on a pure talent level, that's the best team in the AL Central. And if there's anything else, the good thing that the White Sox have going for them is, with the exception of three more games against Cleveland coming at the in about two weeks, and six games remaining against Minnesota, all of which happened in the last week plus of the season. They don't, uh, and sorry, in three games against the Padres, the rest of their schedule is pretty light. They get four games now at Oakland, which is, I think, really going to be decisive, followed by two games hosting the Rockies at home. So the Rockies on the road, who are a pathetic uh, team on the road. Those next next six games, sorry, are going to be crucial for them. 
Um, if only because that's going to be followed by, and this this is the other thing, their schedule is a, is a little weird for that week. It's two games at home against the Rockies, then at Cleveland for a makeup game, followed by three games at Detroit, followed by three games back home against Cleveland. So they'll have the, the e, they'll have a very easy portion there mixed in with four games against Cleveland that are really going to be their last chance to make up ground at least on the Guardians. So that I think will be at least a big boost for the White Sox and that they do get a pretty weak schedule going forward. But again, Cleveland has the weakest schedule uh, of all the, of, like I said, of all the uh, AL Central teams going forward. And just looking at it right now, you have, besides those uh, four games against the White Sox still on the docket, they get to go, uh, let me just, I'll just read it out because there's very little season left at this point. They've got three games mm. left at Minnesota coming up next, which is going to be probably the the big difference for uh, for the Twins, too. Then followed by three games against the Angels, a makeup game against the White Sox, then five games against the Twins, including a doubleheader on, on the 17th. Then three more games at Chicago, three games at Texas, three games against the Rays at home, and then finishing out with six straight games against the Royals at home. Yeah, so the other thing about Cleveland, not only is that schedule just plain easier, but they also get a good chance to bury Minnesota and then bury the White Sox. But really, it's going to be that stretch from the 15th to the 22nd where they play the White Sox, then the Twins, and then the White Sox again. That's really going to, I think, at this point, determine the AL Central because, again, the neither uh, neither team is really going to get another shot after that um, to do anything against the team that is currently in the lead in the AL Central. I mean, the, the Cleveland's also suffering through their own injury issues. They just lost both Zach Plesac and Aaron Savale, and of course, Plesac is down because of the most because of a very Zach Plesac reason, which is to say he broke his hand punching the ground after giving up a home run. Uh, Zach learning that the Earth is a way stronger opponent than he is, so nothing is necessarily set in stone for them. They're kind of having to patch up a rotation right now on the go. Um, obviously, they still have Shane Bieber, so that helps. Uh, they still have Kyle Quantrill who can eat some innings, but they are. You know, they, they, like Minnesota, are also kind of having to try to patch things together a little bit. Tristan McKenzie kind of breaking out has been good for them. I, I think, if anything, Cleveland has the best bullpen of these three teams, which probably makes also a, a substantial difference going forward. You know, they're kind of built to hang on to those close late leads. Uh, obviously, the main issue with Cleveland is they just can't hit. You know, with the exception of, uh, as we've known, Andres Jimenez, Jose Ramirez, and so far, Oscar Gonzalez and uh, picking, up, picking it up against Stephen Kwan, the rest of this lineup is pretty weak. Uh, they're not really scoring runs in bunches, as you would, as one would imagine. So, short answer to that, I, I don't know. I mean, it's just so it, it's almost tiring to try to pick an AL Central team because they're all they're all just generally bad. Who do you and want to see in the division? What would be the best for the playoffs? Best team to be in the playoffs would be Chicago because they okay. have the best the best starters. Um, they have Liam Hendricks. They have the offense with the. I say they have the offense with the highest potential to be good, but truthfully, that offense has been miserable all season. You know, a very impatient offense, a lot of hacking, not a whole lot of power for whatever reason. Gets routinely shut down by right-handed starters. I, I truly don't know. I think at, at the end of it, maybe I end up do end up going with Cleveland, if only because at least they can be a little pesky. As, as I've noted before, it's a, it's a good base-stealing team. It's a good defensive team. They make a lot of contact. Um, you've got Bieber atop the rotation. You've got the trio of... Emmanuel Clase and Trevor Steffen and uh, James Karinchak in the bullpen, who are you know obviously uh, all three very very hard to hit, who make those late game leads that much more difficult for opponents to get uh, uh, to sorry to come back from. I, I I think Cleveland is probably the best of these three teams ultimately, which is probably why you know they are atop the AL Central right now. But 
Uh, like I've said before, ultimately, I don't really think it matters because I don't think any of these three teams are even remotely good enough to beat either the Astros or the Yankees. And probably, I, at this rate, I probably would take whichever wildcard team they face over them anyway, you know, who, whoever that happens to be at this point. Interesting. I just feel like it, the Guardians are just going to make it through, and then I'm... <laughs> We'll see uh, who they get matched up with. I mean, I guess as of right now, it'd be Guardians, Blue Jays. Yeah, and I, I don't like that for Cleveland at all. I, right. I don't like that because Toronto has the same starting has the same starting pitching advantage, mm-hmm. um, has a pretty good bullpen, has Jordan Romano at the end of the games, and just has a powerful lineup that can easily put up a bunch of runs at once. And this Cleveland team, as we I don't know, we've noted before, they don't hit for power. You know, this is not a team that if they go down four or five runs is really in any capacity to make that up uh, in one, in quick bursts or to make it up, you know, in in a short period of time. This is a team that needs to take a lead early and then use its defense and its bullpen to hang on um, hang on to that lead. So I, I, I don't like for them being matched up really against any team that has a surfeit of power, and that's definitely the Blue Jays. I think maybe they'd fare better against the Rays, but the Rays always have that advantage in that they can just, you know... They're like the Patriots of old. They find your they find your strength and they manage to scheme and match up against it so that it go it's taken away from you. Uh, I don't know exactly how that would work in that series, but I do think they'd probably be better off against the Rays or say who is the the Mariners. But I, I don't think the Mariners are going to fall. Well, I guess those teams are all very closely bunched together. Um, Cleveland Seattle would probably be a more closely matched one, but I I don't like Toronto Cleveland for for the Cleveland side of things. I would like healthy Minnesota Toronto though. I think that'd be fun. That would be fun. That would be fun. But yeah, at this point, that, like healthy Minnesota involves not just guys who are on the injured list getting healthy now, but guys who've been on the injured list all season miraculously coming back. You know, I, I just think I just think the Minnesota's too compromised at this point to be an effective playoff team. That's fair. That's fair, uh, John. Um, what do you make of Aaron Judge's historic home run chase? John. He's having one of the greatest individual seasons in, in MLB history, and he's having maybe the greatest second half ever. I mean, let's just, for, for those who just aren't aware of the full numbers, let's just pull up what Aaron Judge has been hitting since since the All-Star break, because it is categorically insane, <laughs> especially when you compare it to what the Yankees as a whole have been doing. So at the very least, people I think are aware that the Yankees have struggled mightily in the second half. You know, a 10.5 game lead in the division, or 15.5 game, or whatever it was, got as low as 4.5, uh, is now back up to 5, but still very over the race, but still very, very tenuous at the moment. Here's what Aaron Judge has hit in the second half. 338, 490, 828. That's an 828 slugging percentage with 22 home runs in 44 games. That's absolutely insane. That is... I, I we don't you don't normally see uh stretches like that really ever mm. you know that that especially and to do it in the context of keeping this team afloat he is the singular thing keeping this team afloat because the Yankees pitching has been bad their bullpen has been bad their defense has been bad the lineup aside from judge has been bad everyone has been getting hurt he is the only thing uh that is that is keeping this team alive at this point and not only keeping the team alive, but again, hitting in a way that is just, it's absurd. It's absolutely absurd what he's done. 22 home runs in 44 games is, is nonsense. The fact that they're, he's almost certainly going to reach uh, 60 home runs, there's a re- very, very good chance he's going he's gonna to pass Maris at 61 for the AL record and for the Yankees team record. 
there is still an outside chance he gets to 70, given how many, given how many and how often he's hitting. Again, just think about that. Like, and this is all, especially in that context of um, betting on himself. You know, mm-hmm. that idea of turning down that extension at the beginning of the season because he said to himself, "No, I am worth more than this, and I'm going to prove it." And so far, he's really proven it. So, and I, I just before you know, I, I do just want to pull up just where this kind of, uh, f- sorry, where this kind of factors in among greatest second half stretches so Aaron Judge has had 198 plate appearances in the second half among all players all time second half performances his OPS of currently or his OPS of 1318 I'm just pulling up the stats now ranks 10th all time in second half performances Mm. every name in front of him is Barry Bonds Ted Williams or Babe Ruth again this is one of the single greatest stretches of performance in the history of the league like we we and and this is the, the the crazy thing about this for me is, um, we ran a piece on Fangraphs recently by Jay Jaffe looking at uh, specifically Shohei Otani with regards to both the MVP and the Cy Young race and kind of where he stands on both because Shohei Otani is a miracle and is a, is a reasonable is a reasonable choice for either if not both awards, but boy that that MVP discussion between Otani and Judge given what Judge has done particularly in the second half given that if this Yankees team does win the division it is almost entirely because of him mm. is is I I don't know how you kind of make that split in my head I mean if I were an MVP voter or if I had an AL MVP vote I probably still do put Otani first because what he's doing is singularly it, it, it has been done one time before and that was a hundred years ago in a completely different context by Babe Ruth what he's doing is nothing short of a miracle, but boy, Judge is making it really, really hard. Again, the 10th highest OPS in a second half in Major League history behind two of the greatest players of all time and literally Barry Bonds. That, there's, no, there's no comparison. There is just no comparison there with what he has done this season. And the other interesting part of that, because I mean, awards races are fun, but they don't really matter in the, in the grand scheme of things is what this means for the contract he's going to sign next season. Because mm. I think it's pretty safe to say that anything south of $300 million is not going to get it done, and I'm starting to think anything south of $400 million is not going to get it done. Because certainly Aaron Judge is not going to do this forever, but he's going onto the market on one of the greatest offensive seasons ever with 60-plus home runs in his prime as a great defensive outfielder. I mean, what, what number he has the right to demand pretty much any number he wants. And I'm, I'm going to be really curious to see how quickly we start to see teams either join that race for judge or say immediately, Nope, I'm out. Whatever he asks for is going to be way, way, way too much. And how quickly this essentially becomes, will the Yankees hold on to him versus will the Mets or the Dodgers uh, make a gigantic play to sign him? I just wonder if it's more the years and not the, the actual monetary element because i think i mean it's there's definitely gonna be both sides to it but the the money in particular i mean he he took he looked at essentially 250 million dollars from the yankees and said absolutely not you know again you're you are your starting offer <laughs> must be at minimum 300 million dollars to sign him you know how many how many teams can even like can even begin to think in that direction regardless of what the years are and what the aav is I mean, you could try to, to structure some kind of 15-year, $300 million deal, 
But then the the downsides of that are, one, you are paying him until he is 45 years old, so that's not going to happen. And two, he's almost certainly going to say no to that anyway because he's going to want, a, presumably, an AAV north of $30 million a year. Mm-hmm. So I, can is it really going to be possible to do a contract longer than eight years? Or, say, or even shorter, necessarily, than four without having that? I mean... Maybe you could convince him to take some kind of Scherzer deal at, like, three years, $150 million or something, you know, just to, if you really just want the short peak of contention and he just wants, but if, the other thing is, if he wants that long-term commitment, he is almost certainly going to insist on something that looks like eight years and probably $350 million. What team mm-hmm. is, what team wants to do that? I really want to know because he's earned it 100%. You know, he can name any number he wants and it's, and it's both legitimate and, and justifiable. So I, I am just going to be fascinated as to what his free agency looks like because there really are only going to be about four or five teams that actually have any real shot of signing him. But they're going to be getting one of the five best players in baseball for that. For sure. Um, he is not one of the best players in baseball yet, Josh, but he might be. Who knows? Josh Jung uh, got called or is getting called up by the Texas Rangers this weekend. Uh, what do you know about Josh, and what is uh, what do the Fangrass folks think about uh, this prospect for the Rangers? Yeah, so Young came. I, I don't know, is, it, is it Young or Young? I really hope it's Young because then we can make Carl Young, Sigmund Freud jokes. Um, I don't know. What is it? <laughs> do we know? I, 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 I actually I never know pronunciation stuff. It's always beyond me. Um, maybe it's Young, but I. So his young, middle name's also strange to pronounce, like R Y N E. Is that Ryan? Yeah, it should be Ryan. What what, what else would Ryan? it be? Okay. Rena. Rena, yeah. Rien. Rien. I mean, it's like very French. Rene. Ryan. Um, <laughs> so the unfortunate thing with, with, with Josh, I'm just going to skip his last name at this point, yeah. is he's barely played this season because of a shoulder injury he suffered, uh, I believe, either in spring training or during the offseason that cost him the great majority of the season. He, he's, made, he's played all of 31 games between um, a brief stint in rookie balls, a rehab appearance, and then uh, 23 games in AAA where he hit for a lot of power. Which does come in line with his uh, with his overall prospect grades. Uh, back during we put out our Texas Rangers top fifty prospects list back on June sixth, uh, we had him as our number one prospect with sixty future value grades on his raw and game power as well as his fielding and particularly his arm, uh, with a fifty five on his hit. Uh, noting that he was an elite college reformer at Texas Tech who did not have a huge amount of power there, but has seen that explode during his time in the minors. Um, seems like there is a very good chance he sticks at third base. Uh, we really like his defensive attributes, uh, good hands, good arm. He's agile at the position. So I would not be surprised if this is a guy who just comes up and hits for power immediately. That has just been his thing. It seems like he does have a chance to stick long-term at third base, which is always nice to see when we... Uh, for our updated 2022 rankings, he was number 12 on our board right now. Um, in, again, due in large part to the injury that kept him out most of the season. But for comparison's sake, uh, the prospects we have around him, C.J. Abrams is one spot ahead of him. Uh, Drew Jones, the number two pick by the Diamondbacks, and of course Andrew Jones' son, one, one slot behind him, followed by Tristan Casas, who just got called up. Uh, or Casas, again, another another one where I look at the name, I'm like, you could pronounce this a couple different ways. Um, but you look at the prospects around Jamie, him, Mark. Jamie, can you look that up for us? Jamie, can you look up <laughs> pronunciation? That'd be great. Thanks. But you look at the prospects around him. It, it's an elite group. Marco Luciano, Marce- Marcelo Mayer, Mick Abel, Henry Davis, uh, Jackson Holiday, the number one pick in last year's draft. So 
I think, you know, Rangers fans have been looking forward to this a lot, and this is obviously the first and most major arrival of that big wave of talent that they do have, um, obviously with Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker coming at some point uh, to be determined. Uh, and, uh, you know, they've already brought up Leody Tavares, who has, for the most part, hit all right. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, they're, they're still waiting to see kind of what, what he can be as well going forward. Ezekiel Duran, who's been up and who has been good for them. Uh, Josh Smith, who's been up and has been good for them. So I'm excited to see what he does. I think you can expect a good amount of power going forward. There might be a little bit of... Um, Obviously, you know, any rookie coming up to, to, to the majors, there's going to be a little bit of an adjustment. And I think especially for him, given how little he's played this season, that, that adjustment might be a little tougher. But I think um, even if we don't get anything for the rest of this season, and, and really there's only about three-ish weeks left in the season, so there were, I don't think we're going to learn terribly that much unless he just hits like two, like 180 or something with a billion strikeouts. But again, every time a prospect does come up in struggles, I always, you know, want to kind of remind people, go ahead and look up what Mike Trout did in his very first major league stint. Uh, not his rookie of the year winning season, but the first 40 games he played at age 19 when he hit 220, 281, 390 in 135 mm. plate appearances. Major league baseball is really, really hard. It's the hardest thing in the entire world. So, you know, I don't, I don't really want to judge uh, ju- young. I'm doing it to myself now. <laughs> I'm just, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, that's it. I'm just gonna look it up now for myself because baseball reference should have a, a pronunciation guide. Young. It's Josh Young. Okay. Okay. So I'm not gonna, ju- I'm not gonna judge Young off of what happens over these next three weeks. This is, if anything, I think this is the Ranger saying, hey, we're gonna have you up here next season. So we just wanna have you up here now so you can start getting acclimated, so you can understand what the major leagues feel like, so you can get a feel for road trips and home games and how we prepare up here and what, just what it's like being up here. That's because, you know, this Texas team. <clears throat> Excuse me. This Texas team, their season's already done. Um, you know, they, they had a long losing streak in there uh, not long after letting go of Chris Woodward. Uh, you know, they're almost 20 games under 500 right now. They're, you know, what happens with the rest of their season on the, on the you know, in terms of wins and losses simply doesn't matter. And on top of that, they do have a pretty, they do have a pretty good tough schedule down the stretch. You know, they got to play the Jays, the Rays, uh, Cleveland, Seattle, the Yankees to end the season. You know, they're going to, they're gonna have they're gonna have some uh, some semi difficult matchups in there, which is also gonna be a good a good way to you know give Young a test. It isn't just garbage time. I, I think we'll we'll get to know more about him next season, assuming he stays healthy, and I think he's gonna be a very popular pick for uh, assuming he doesn't surpass the the what's it called the threshold of, of plate appearances. I think he's gonna be a pretty popular pick for uh, AL Rookie of the Year votes next season, or at least preseason AL Rookie of the Year votes, because. Again, this is a guy who combines a uh, good offense with good defense at a premium position, and who is almost certainly going to be a middle of the order presence in Texas going forward. Uh, and again, most notably, the first you know the first real step in terms of their okay. Now we're going to call these kids up. Now we're going to see what we've got. You know, I assume Jack Leiter and Kumar Rocker will be up at some point next year to join him. You know, so this is this is if nothing else just the sign of the the coming future in Texas. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what he does. You know, anytime, anytime a big prospect comes up, you get excited because you really want to see what they're capable of. Local uh, kid went to Texas Tech, was a really good player there, uh, first rounder. We'll see. Top 30, baseball prospectus, uh, baseball America, no matter who you get to look at. Uh, exciting. So we'll see what happens down the stretch. Really, it's about next year, like you said. We'll see what he looks like next year. John. Yes. I am so excited to, to mention this to you. You've tried to bury this story on this podcast for many months, many years now, John. 
and that okay. has been the the slow rise of the Baltimore Orioles. You you always want to can it. You don't want to do it. You don't want to do the Baltimore Orioles segment on the podcast. Baltimore Orioles sellers at the deadline. You know what they're not doing right now? Going away quietly. The they're Baltimore not. Orioles are still in the playoff wild card hunt on September eighth, twenty twenty two. John, explain. After John Means gone for the year, Trey Mancini traded. Why are the Baltimore Orioles still in the thick of things, and why are they still uh, on the outside looking in on the playoffs? Now, just imagine what they'd look like if they hadn't gotten rid of Trey Mancini and Jorge Lopez. Well, that's, I'm just saying. I'm, I'm just saying. But we also could go the other way. Like, what if they just? What if this was something that helped, like moving those guys out the door uh, at that point? What if they go the I, other I, way? I admire this. I admire this attempt. <laughs> it's not gonna work. Um, I think a big a big part of <clears throat> excuse me why Baltimore is where it is is. First and foremost, they're they're pitching, which mm. is an insane thing to have thought even before the season that Baltimore would have uh, decent pitching, much less good pitching compared to you know the Orioles teams that came in years prior. But uh, this year's Orioles team, five hundred they five hundred sixty two runs allowed, or sorry, five hundred sixty two runs allowed in one hundred and thirty seven games, which amounts to four point one runs a game. The 2021 Orioles gave up 956 runs in 162 games, which amounts to almost six runs a game. So that's a two-run-a-game drop mm. in terms of runs allowed between last year's edition and this year's edition, which is how you go from 52 wins in last place to 72 wins and still fighting for a wild-card spot uh, this late into the season. Worth noting, too, that if the Orioles were in the AL Central, they'd be on top of that division by, like, two games. Yet another reason why we must abolish the evil and stupid AL Central, and not, and in fact, all divisions entirely. Just, just reorganize the whole thing. What, what do divisions matter at this point if you're going to have playoff seating anyway? You know, then if you're going to have playoff seating, then you should be doing that by wins and losses. You shouldn't be doing that by some arbitrary. I won my division based on who cares. But to get back to Baltimore, at least they're doing it with the pitching. Uh, they're doing it thanks to guys like Dean Kramer, um, guys like you know Kyle Bradish getting called up and and being a, a, a useful presence in their rotation, particularly Austin Voth and uh, Austin Voth has been, has been terrific for them. A waiver claim from the nationals looked like a, a total nothing in his time over there, but has been fantastic for them. Um, it, it, it really is so much of it as the pitching. The bullpen has been great too, even without Jorge Lopez there. Felix Bautista obviously has been uh, the big story there, but they've gotten really good work too out of Dylan Tate. Um <clears throat> Excuse me, out of out of Cianel Perez, their their top lefty in the bullpen. Um, Brian Baker has been has been better than his numbers indicate. Um, he's got a 4.24 ERA, but he's got a FIP under three. Um, and if, and to, and it helps too when you can just call up top prospects seemingly anytime you want. Adley Rutschman, mm-hmm. obviously already there. Kyle Stower is getting the call up, not hitting particularly well yet, but you know has a lot of. Uh, Upside in his bat, Gunnar Henderson, the most recent one to come up, and one you love his flow. That hair is just fantastic, but just being able to plug him into the infield, get a power bat in there as they need it, really that that is I think the big thing for the Orioles is you're starting to see that youth come up that you know we've been waiting for for a long time, and also there has been a marked and notable change in the way their pitchers are and just what they've been what they've been doing. And I mean some of that is you're just not seeing the same guys who have been kind of clogging up the works for the last few years like. You know, Bruce Zimmerman, Michael Bauman, uh, not not the fan grass Michael Bauman, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Travis Lakins, you know, I, I, I feel like I don't want these guys to feel like they're catching strays. But at the same time, like, those were pitchers who simply were not working for one reason or another. Now they have pitchers who have actual stuff, basically, who have something they can actually contribute in terms of what they bring to what they bring to the team versus guys who are just kind of there just to soak up innings because they don't have anyone else. So that youth movement is a big thing. The way that they've improved their pitching has been uh, an enormous contribution. But like, I, I just want to focus on like someone like Kramer, for example, who is not a name that presumably a lot of folks know unless they are Orioles fans or unless they're, you know, regular AL East baseball watchers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, he has... Uh, 323 ERA in 94 and two-thirds innings. It's not with a lot of strikeouts, but also not with a lot of walks, which is, I think, also really important that Orioles teams previous years, you would see a lot of walks. And you'd also see a lot of home runs, and I think that's a big thing, too, that these these pitchers are not giving up as many home runs. But, you know, you look at Kramer's baseball spawn page, there's a lot of blue in his percentile rankings, but he avoids walks. Uh, he gets he has a high-spin curveball, high-spin fastball that do good work for him. He gets... He gets hitters to chase outside of the zone on a pretty good basis his uh you know his fastball limits hard contact although by the expected stats it really should be way worse than it actually is and some of this there's going to be some level of regression but at the same time you know he just he gets weak contact and i think that is such a huge part of what has been the case for orioles pitching is just staying away from the heart of the zone staying away from you know just hucking 91 mile an hour fastball straight down straight down the heart of plate using pitches with movement with deception there does seem to have been some kind of wholesale change in how the Orioles go and how the Orioles develop and not just develop, but also manage their pitching. So I think that's really been the biggest thing about this is that Baltimore has been able to stay in games with their pitching and give chances for their hitters to do what they need to do because they do have a talented and useful lineup. So it's not exactly surprising given who and what they have that they are where they are. I just think it's the surprise, if anything, is you look at that rotation and you look at the names in and you're like, wait a minute, Jordan Lyles has an ERA under five? How did that happen? Or, you know, Tyler Wells hasn't been terrible. You know, whatever Spencer Watkins is was not awful either. Like, they've, they've been getting useful contributions from their rotation and from their bullpen, and that's just something that did not happen before. Do you think they make the playoffs ultimately? No, no. I I, I think they don't. Um, I know our playoff odds are very low, and then we have them with a mere 2.9% chance of making the postseason, which isn't necessarily a reflection of anything about the Orioles. It's Well, it's a reflection of a few things. Um, in particular, it's, it's a reflection that our projections don't really think that our projections don't fully buy the performances that the Orioles have gotten in part because there's just not a whole lot of, um, past performance for those projections to go on, but also just because these are, these are performances coming out of guys that the projections had initially thought were not going to be all that great. Again, Dean Kramer, Spencer Watkins, Jordan Lyles, Austin Voth, these are not the... These are not the building blocks of a particularly good team. And on the one hand, you can say, well, maybe your projection should account for the fact that they are good now. But at the same time, our projections are not suddenly going to decide, okay, Austin Voth is just take Jacob deGrom now, and we're going to adjust everything to go that direction. Because at the end of the day, for as good as the Orioles are, the teams in front of them in the standings have more talent. The Blue Jays are a better team. The Rays are a better team. The Yankees are a better team. The Mariners are a better team. I am not going to go so far as to say any of the AL Central teams are better teams, but at the very least, all of the teams in front of them in that wild card chase are legitimately better teams, I think. So I don't know that they have the juice to get past any of those particular teams. Uh, if only, again, if only just because, you know, that those are those are really good teams standing in front of them, and the Orioles, for as much talent as they can bring up from the minors, for as much as they've gotten out of their pitchers, 
there is not an Aaron Judge level player on that team who's just suddenly going to carry him. Or there's not, say, a, a Justin Verlander, Verlander level arm on that team who they can count on to go out every fifth start and just dominate for them all the way down. I mean, if there is one good news, if there is good news for the Orioles, they have a pretty good schedule, a pretty easy schedule going forward. Five games coming up now against three against Boston, then two against the Nationals, uh, three against Detroit still on the schedule, four more against the Red Sox after that. But they also have six games against Toronto, three games against the Yankees, and four games against Houston that are going to be really, really difficult for them. Toronto obviously has given them absolute fits uh, throughout the season. They just took three of four. That's really, really going to hurt uh, in terms of the playoff odds and, you know, the and, – and, yeah, sorry. Uh, that's really going to hurt them in terms of playoff odds. And, of course, the Yankees, they're, the Orioles are 5-11 and 11 against the Yankees this season. Not exactly – the, the record you want to see against a contending team. And I, I don't know. I, I just think for as good as the Orioles have been, I guess that I think it just boils down to the teams in front of them are better. Well, I want, I, it's tough because it's like the Rays are just going to be in and the Rays are going to be annoying no matter who they get matched up with. Rays Mariners is uh, going to be a very, um, uh, Rays. Yeah. Rays Mariners, um, will be strange, but, We'll ultimately see what happens here, and I just want the Blue Jays in because I want to see the Blue Jays do come postseason time. And Orioles next year is the year. Uh, we'll 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 hope for uh, you to get through this. Um, last thing, John Taylor, Zach Gallen, uh, may just be the best pitcher in baseball. He is right now 40, 41 and a third consecutive inning scoreless streak. What's going on? What what's the rationale? Why not rationale? Like what? What's the reason as to why Zach has just been so freaking dominant over the last 40 plus innings uh it, it's funny too because it's not just gallon it's the diamondbacks as a whole have been really good in the second half which i imagine mm. most people have not noticed because most people do not pay attention to the diamondbacks and with good reason mm. um if you want to understand why gallon's pitching well part of it is that his fastball has been incredibly hard to hit um so has his curveball but i mean both those pitches were very hard to hit last year too so is the change of he has he has just done better with the fastball, I think, location-wise. There's a little more velocity on it, too. Um, there is a little more spin on it. He's locating better, I think, is a, is a big part of that. He's getting more ground balls. He's getting more weak contact. Um, he's getting, he's avoiding, he's avoiding the barrel way better than he was before, avoiding hard hits. Some of that, too, I think there is a lot of... Um, a lot of the opponents he's faced have not necessarily been the best. Uh, just looking back at his, I know his last start was against Milwaukee, a team that is an absolute free fall. Uh, so that obviously helps. But um, I mean, it's funny too, because his next start is against the Rockies in course. So if he manages to get out of that one with still in a scoreless inning streak, he clearly is the best pitcher in baseball. But uh, his last, here, last starts in going reverse. Milwaukee, Philadelphia, which has also been in its own struggle, the Royals, who are terrible, the Giants, who have collapsed, the Rockies, at Coors, amazingly, so he's already done it before, and Pittsburgh. So mm. not the hardest stretch of, of competition there, but, I mean, really, it's simple. You, you look at the game logs for his, pitch, for his starts, he's just throwing a ton of strikes. He's mm. getting ahead in the count, he's working in the strike zone, he's making batters uh, basically hit his pitches. And anytime you can execute like that on a consistent, regular level, you're doing something right. And that has been a lot of the case for for uh, for Gallon. So, too, is the fact that his curveball has just been a, a much better pitch in 2022 than it was last year. Uh, last year had a, a weighted on base average allowed of 262, which is not terrible, but is also not particularly great. Um, this year, that's all the way down to 206. 
you know, and I think there's some sequencing going on there too. He used the curveballs as put away pitch a quarter of the time last year. That's down to 20% because he has brought more use up of the changeup in its stead and a little bit more of the cutters, or sorry, a little bit uh, less of the cutter, which is also a more hittable pitch. Um, little less of the slider too. And I think that hmm. that is also a big thing. The slider was not an effective pitch for him last year. Uh, run value of eight per baseball savant, which is bad. Negative numbers good, positive numbers bad when it comes to run value. Uh, batting average against of 250, slugging percentage against of 667, and a WOBA of 438 on that slider last year. This year, he's barely throwing it. He threw it 8.5% uh, of the time last year, only 1% of the time this year. Uh, the corresponding increase has gone primarily to uh, his curveball, which has been, which jumped from 12% to 20%, and like I said, it's been a much, much better pitch. So that is obviously a big part of it too as well. The pitches just mirror each other. The fastball and the curveball mirror each other really nicely in a way that the slider just never particularly did. The slider was a better mirror for his changeup, but I mean, you don't really want or need that. So for me, not necessarily surprising that Gallon. I mean, surprising that Gallon is doing this because the, the big issue with him too has always just been health, or at least for the last mm -hmm. couple seasons, it's felt like. So that's a big part of it too. You stay healthy, you, you, you work in the strike zone, uh, you find a better secondary pitch than the slider or... Not, I mean, the second the slider wasn't necessarily secondary, but you find uh, a better breaking ball than the slider in, in terms of uh, going to the curveball instead. And I think that pretty well gets us to the point where you can, I mean, you need a lot of luck to run off a 41 and a third scoreless inning streak just because of how many, you know, you get balls put in play. It's just some of them are hits, some of them are not. Some of them are hits with runners in scoring position, some of them are not. But ultimately, uh, Gallon has just been a flat out better pitcher this year because he's just thrown more strikes and, and using a, a breaking ball secondary pitch that has just been flat out better than the ones he had last year. Interesting. Um, John Taylor, what can the good folks check out from you and the team over at Fangraphs.com uh, the rest of this week? So I want to direct attention. As you mentioned, we just hired Michael Bauman, former staff writer at The Ringer, to join our happy team. So go check out. Uh, he had a piece that was up today, unsurprisingly, given Michael's body of work about the MLB and minor league baseball unionization efforts. So go check that out if you want to learn more about that and get his takes on it. He is one of the better, if not best, labor writers in about the game right now. Um, tomorrow, the end of the week, we're going to have uh, mostly some some smaller stuff. But uh, if you're interested, the Rays in particular have had a fantastic second half to push their way within five games of first place in the AL East. Jay Jaffe is going to have a piece looking at that. Uh, we're also going to have something from Dan Zimborski that actually I'm working on right now about two Japanese players uh, who are almost certainly going to be, well, I don't know if they necessarily will be part of the off-season look-ahead in terms of whether or not they can come here, but Munetaka Murakami and uh, Roki Sasaki, who have been fantastic in NPB, uh, Dan is going to use Zips to take a look at them and see how their performances might translate over to the United States, to Major League Baseball. So if you're at all curious about the next possible big things coming out of Japan, uh, check that out tomorrow. Again, Dan on Murakami and Sasaki. Otherwise, it is business as usual at Fangraphs as we gear up for the playoffs. Come on down. Check us out. Uh, a reminder, we launched a new app recently. Go download that if you'd like Fangraphs on the go. Become a member at Fangraphs. Help support us for just $60 a year. And like I said, come join us and welcome Michael Bauman to the fold. It's going to be really great having him around, particularly for the postseason uh, so come check that out. And one thing I do want to mention from earlier in the week that I think will be of general interest to people, 
Uh, ben Clements did a piece using a simulation to try to predict when Aaron Judge might get to 61 home runs and possibly beyond. So if you're a Yankees fan, if you just you know want to see where where things might go with him, check that out. Um, so you can start planning your calendars to see what will surely be history. But yeah, Fangraphs.com. We're cool. Absolutely. And also, John, I don't know if you knew this or not, but Michael Bauman is a South Carolina Gamecock, and there's mm-hmm. been some. He, uh, he does not. Uh, he does not hide that for sure. Well, uh, I mean, he should. I mean, as a Tennessee volunteer. You, okay. Well, you, look, we, we can't all be we can't all be volunteers, can we? We cannot. Uh, we cannot. Um, but you need to get his perspective on uh, the cock commander uh, situation with uh, Sir Big Spur, who is now the general. Does any of those words make any sense? No, to I you? unfortunately I understand exactly what you're talking about. I liked it better when cock commander was something I didn't understand. I could just <laughs> pretend that everyone was just wanting to say that for some reason. Mm-hmm. But yes, I, I do fully understand the, the kerfuffle over uh, the naming of South Carolina's little rooster guy. Yes. Well, we need to get the full statement from Michael Bauman. Uh, if he has to go to his notes app on Twitter, whatever he's got to do, I want a, I want a full statement on. What, uh, a, what is the name Bixper. of Tennessee's dog? What is the name of Tennessee's dog? Smokey, sir. That's not very Smokey. clever. Huh? That's not very clever. It's not trying to be clever. It was made a long time ago. But when you have an opportunity to be clever, when you're renaming a name, you're starting from scratch. Wait, so how many how many Smokies have there been? Is this like an Uga situation where they're where they're like Uga twelve, like an Uga thirteen, like it's some kind of royal bloodline? Yes. So this okay. one, I think they just introduced Smokey eleven, but don't quote okay. me on that. I could be wrong. So when when Smokey eleven goes to the the big family farm in the sky and they, and they <laughs> oh my goodness bring out Smokey twelve. <laughs> Is there going to be like Allah the Queen where there's going to be like flags at half staff and like they're going to break into local programming in Tennessee to announce that Smokey has passed on and then, then there's a new Smokey now and there'll be a, a month of mourning and black crepe and big fancy funerals and a coronation for the new Smokey or is, or is the SEC just not as weird as England in that regard? Well, it's funny you say that because uh, Dan Rubenstein of uh, the Solid Verbal, he mentioned this and like his idea is that all because we treat these mascots especially the live ones like they're people and that they have this they're this there's an aura around Smokey, around Ugga, around sir big spur um now the cock commander not the general as they uh are trying to lead people astray uh, lead people astray there um you got the the buff in uh, colorado you got bevo the texas longhorns the point being any of these colleges especially because they're public institutions they should be like at these meetings they should have a voice they should be treated like uh government entities where they're going in like the the flat like you said the flags at half mass and like they should be in on all of these things like Smokey should be involved in the in the tennessee process um at this point but no i think a&m actually with their their dog they have a collie as uh their live mascot and i can't why am i blanking on their his actual name um, but he is treated 10 times more uh, seriously than Smokey or any of the other mascots. Like, that's a that's a full-on uh, England-type deal uh, with how they treat uh, the college. What is her his or her name? I forgot. Which which, which school is this? Texas A&M. Okay. Um, dog mascot name. Dog, Look, the, what, I mean, there's not a whole lot going on in College Station, so they, they need to focus on something, right? Yes. Rayville. Uh, reveal, excuse me, reveal, that 
Revele, that's it. There you go. Revele, and she's the first lady. Yeah, it's a female. So Revele is the first lady of Aggieland. It, she is literally called the first lady of Aggieland. Like I'm, su- I'm surprised someone hasn't tried to do some Game of Thrones SEC mascots crossover thing. Because it's all <laughs> right there. It is right there. But yeah, Revele um, is the one who's treated most like royalty. So if you were to tell me they were doing like what you were describing, if there was one pick in college football, who they would do that for would be uh, Revele in College Station. Yeah, I guess because like Uga has died enough times where they're probably. I mean, also it's a it it's a bulldog. Those things have very poor health in general. It's like mm-hmm. they they're probably really used to that one. Mm-hmm. It's just having to replace him or her. Uh, I'm not sure if Uga is a gender Uga's dog. Uga, yeah. but a yeah, I, that that doesn't surprise me. Wow, just all kinds of shots. Uh, at the there, there the are no shots here. There are no shots. It's just acknowledging the reality that is the you know. Some Wait, you had a bulldog. You went to the others. bulldogs, right? Didn't you go to Columbia? Columbia is the lions. Oh, are they the lions? Who are the bulldogs yeah. in that? Uh, Yale. Yale's the bulldogs. Okay, so Columbia's the lions. Did y'all have a real lion? Yes, one hundred percent. We had a real lion for our <laughs> Ivy League football games where we would lose to Georgetown. Well, I mean, there's a Yale bulldog. I didn't know. Because it's a dog. They can have a dog. <laughs> Hold on. We have longhorns in our sport. We have tigers. That's we in places tigers. where it matters. I don't know, man. There, you, you Columbia uh, football doesn't matter. It matters to some. It matters no, to some. It, it, look, it, it might mean more in the SEC. It means nothing in the Ivy League. Trust me on that one. Well, it's because y'all refuse to compete in the FCS playoffs. Like, I don't understand that line of thinking at all. Like, they just are like, well, nope, it's, it's our the, season's well, over. It's the whole line of thinking that is the Ivy League is above you common heathen slobs <laughs> is the whole part of that. Is that we are above education and such. And also, you guys probably don't pay the Ivy schools anything to do that. Or not you not you guys, because I know you're t- Division One, but... I don't know. I mean, what's the benefit for Columbia to play in the FCS and get demolished by teams like North Dakota State or whatever? Well, Dartmouth's good, man. Dartmouth's a good team. I don't care if Dartmouth's good. Dartmouth's not a real place. (laughs) We need to get... I I feel like there's some... You could teach me a whole podcast on the FCS... Or the uh, Ivy League dynamics and how different Ivies feel about each other. They all hate each other for what it's worth. Except for Brown. No one hates Brown because no one cares about Brown. They're just kind of there. Interesting. Okay. No offense to Brown. Eh, some offense. That's to Brown. extremely offensive. They're just there. Whatever. Oh. It's they don't have ad, it's not like they have advertising money. I'm not costing you anything there. It's true. Is that in New Jersey? Is Brown the one in New Jersey? No, they're in uh they're in Rhode Island in Providence. Who's in New Jersey? Princeton. Uh, Princeton. Princeton's in New Jersey. Okay. And they're the Tigers. Then you got uh, Brown Bears. Is that Brown right? Bears, uh the okay. Dartmouth Big Green, the mm-hmm. Cornell Big Red, the Harvard Crimson. Mm-hmm. Or the Yale Bulldogs, the Columbia Lions, and am I missing anyone in there? Oh, Penn, the Penn Quakers. The Penn Quakers. Uh, only person I know who went to Penn was uh, Beckley Mason, long time friend of the pod, OG of basketball Twitter. Uh, was a Penn. Penn, Penn, if nothing else, when Fran Dunphy was the head coach of their men's basketball team, was a mm. fixture in the uh, in the NCAA tournament because they perpetually won the Ivy League, and so Penn would always be that 14 or 15 seed getting its shit wrecked. By like Texas or whatever. Actually, well, see, remember I one year they played Columbia ever being in the NCAA tournament. Columbia has never. Columbia won the Ivy League in 1968 and has not <laughs> won it since. Oh my God! Jim McMahon was on that Columbia team. Really? Yeah. 
Interesting. That's but uh, interesting. no, Columbia has not won the Ivy League in men's basketball in quite well, some time. Also, explain that to me. So you compete in the March Madness, but you don't compete in the FCS playoffs? Like, that's a bridge too far. Look, but I, I, I'm not going to be the one to try to make sense of this. I don't understand it. I was, I worked on the college paper for sports for all four years, and I don't understand it at all. But part of it is also I didn't care. Mm. But... Yeah, Penn Penn was a fixture in the in the in the men's basketball tournament for a while there. I remember one year they played Texas with Royal Ivy, like mm-hmm. pretty close. I uh, remember with that. a very good young point guard named Ibby Jabber, uh, who was a good dude. Um, Ibby Jabber, Ibrahim Jabber. But uh, lately, the the men's teams that have been showing up in the tournament have been Yale, Cornell, and Harvard. I remember there was mm-hmm. a that long run, obviously, where Cornell made it to the Sweet Sixteen. That run where Harvard made I remember it to the, believe, the Elite Eight before Kentucky yeah. absolutely stomped there. Or was it? Was it Cornell or Harvard who got their shit stomped in by Kentucky? The John Wall, DeMarcus Cousins, Kentucky team. That feels like Harvard, but I could be wrong. Whoever it was, they got, I mean, understandably, they got annihilated by a team of future NBA All-Stars. But, like, mm-hmm. believe me, that believe you me, though, that I didn't watch, that I watched every one of those games with just the incredible feeling of how come it's them and not us. I one love day, this. One day John, it will you... be Columbia getting waxed as a 15 seed in the NCAA tournament, and I'll be feeling good about that. You are a deep-down Columbia Ivy League fanatic. You kept this down. You pretend it's not ingrained. Oh, no, this is this are. is the only thing I care about is is Columbia making the men's tournament. That's it. Mm. That, that's all I care about because I just want to, for once in my <laughs> life, I want a rooting interest in the NCAA tournament that is beyond whether or not the team will win or lose me $25. Well, John, you're a longtime friend of the pod, so I, hey, whatever Tennessee does, you can live vicariously through me and my experience. In the Tennessee industry. has a basketball team? Okay. John Taylor, uh, thank you as <laughs> always, my friend. We can find you. I mean, I remember the Bruce Pearl years. Is he still there? At J.A. Taylor. Uh, you can also go subscribe to Fangraphs.com, uh, where John's breaking up as we wrap up here on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, still, go Big Orange Friday to come after this with Brent Hubbs and uh, Ryan Shumpert to talk about not the basketball team, uh, football team uh, going to pit this weekend. So stick around for that. Uh, but as always, John, thank you. And uh, I will talk to you next week. Sounds good. All right, hello, and welcome back. It's Chase Most Podcast, taping this on a Thursday afternoon here on Blue Wire Pod Network, where I'm now joined by a first-timer on the Go Big Orange Friday. We're doing this a day early here on the program. Brent Hubs of BallQuest, now of On3 as of just a few days ago. So go, subscri- go subscribe excuse me, uh, to On3 and BallQuest.com if you have not already done so. It's worth it. Uh, good value deals right now on VolQuest uh, for joining up right now. But Brent, good afternoon, sir. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to, to visiting with you and get ready for a little Tennessee-Pittsburgh coming up on Saturday. Absolutely. Are you going to be in the building for rivalry Thursday tonight with Gibbs? Uh, I will be at uh, Carson Newman this evening, yes. for Don't even get me started on the debacle that is the Gibbs High School Stadium situation. That's a that's a podcast all to it, its own. But yes, uh, I will be making my way to Carson Newman tonight. So uh, looking forward to that one up there. I learned with my media pass today for that game that it is in Carson Newman, uh, Brent, that I did not realize that this game was in Carson Newman until they mentioned Carson Newman. I was like, why did he say Carson Newman press box? What is 
what is this? And then I looked it up and I'm like, oh, their stadium's not ready. And this game is uh, at Carson Newman and not at Gibbs High School. And I'm over here in Fountain City. And I was like, that's a little bit more of a more of a drive that I was anticipating uh, this evening. So I don't know. Uh, are they just bouncing around? Is it Carson Newman every home game? How does that work? Uh, we're bounced around. We had to play Webb at Webb. It was supposed to be uh-huh. a home game for us. And, and we had to go to Webb there. Um Central is providing their home field for us for our home games when they're not home. So we're going to play two games at Central. That'll be Gibbs home games. Um, And then the last game of the season is against South Doyle, and it looks like it's probably going to be at South Doyle. And that's unfortunate because that might be for a playoff spot or playoff seating. So uh, the the sad part about this one tonight is, as you know, in Fountain City uh, and Gibbs, I mean, they're – 10 minutes apart mm-hmm. so, um, biggest gate of the year at Gibbs high school, most money to be made homecoming, all your fundraisers and everything. This is a game that you had circled on the calendar as a, one of your money makers. And, and obviously it's a rivalry game between a bunch of kids who've known each other and have played against each other for a long time. So it's disappointing that you don't get to play it at home, but um, thanks to the good folks at path construction for their colossal failure and managing the project <laughs> and uh, our friends at Knox County schools for uh, not overseeing it uh, the way that most people would think you should oversee it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not going to play a home game this year. Our goal right now at Gibbs high schools, we hope that it's ready in February for the soccer season. And that's not a given right now. That's insane. Cause it started a long, long time ago, Last right? November. Oh my. Last November. <laughs> like I said, I can do a whole podcast, Chase, but I'm not sure anybody wants to hear my soapbox on that one. Hey, man, we got a lot of East Tennessee listeners, so uh, I'm sure that... So, folks, if you're thinking about going to Rivalry Thursday tonight at Gibbs High School, uh, you might be the only one there because it's not there. It's at Carson. There's not going to be a place for you to sit. I can't <laughs> there because it, it looks like, it looks like uh, a demolition site, and as it has for the last 10 and a half months. Goodness gracious. Well, Ryan Shumpert, also here of Rocky Top Insider. We were at the Oak Ridge game last Friday together. Uh, T. Higgins just made his way into the building, uh, just very nonchalantly, just walked in. And I looked at Ryan as he got in the gate because uh, you got to move in. And I was like, that's T. Higgins. Like, that's that's T. Higgins, right? Like, what? And uh, Ryan was like, yeah, that's that's T. Higgins. And just uh, having uh, watching a game on the field and hearing just uh, a cornucopia of seven-year-olds screaming tea over and over and over still again and just it's it's still for both of us we're just we're not going to get that out of our, our head anytime soon but cool of tea to to come back and check out the oak ridge clean game which is a really fun game uh came down to the wire so that was a really really fun game but that is enough of the east tennessee uh high school update on uh this podcast but i want to start off pit uh this weekend um ryan we'll start with you i am i flipped over the last week based on what we saw from pit against west virginia and i was going through like averaging two yards to carry 38 carries for 50 something yards on the ground that we know that uh with um uh with without uh Mike or Mark Whipple, excuse me, moving on to Nebraska and their kind of change and being under center significantly more uh, over the weekend that they're going to try and run the football uh, a lot more. But it's also that West Virginia line wasn't very good and they were still able to do a lot of stuff against this pit defense. And I just I've kind of flipped where I'm far more nervous about Florida and being in the building for Nealon in week four than I am about going on the road pit. I feel pretty good. The six and a half point where on the college football show we did yesterday. I took the points and Tennessee winning big because I am not certain that Pitt 
can come back from behind the way they could a year ago with Kenny Pickett and company. And if they get in a hole against this Tennessee first quarter, the best first quarter team in the country, people forget. I just don't see it going Pitt's way. Do you do you share that sentiment and that optimism going into Saturday? Yeah, I do in a lot of ways. And I think that's going to be one of my keys for the game. Uh, have that piece tomorrow morning uh, as I make the ro- get on the road to Pittsburgh. And I think if Tennessee starts fast, like, like you said, like they've done so many times under Josh Heupel, this Pitt offense, I, I don't think it's built uh, to overcome uh, overcome that like they were a year ago. So I think that's really important. And you really look at that Pitt-West Virginia game. I, it's the fact that Pitt struggled in areas you didn't expect him to struggle. You know, veteran offensive line, they don't run for 100 yards. I think Slovis got sacked four or four or five times. And then all Pat Narduzzi's defense pride themselves on stopping the run. And West Virginia was just gashing them in that third quarter. And really when it looked like they might go run, run away with that game and win by a touchdown or two. And I think West Virginia ended up running for maybe just under 200 yards. You know, if either of those things happens on Saturday, Tennessee runs for 200 yards or holds Pittsburgh under 100 yards rushing. I have a really hard time, you know, seeing this game being, I won't say competitive, but not being one Tennessee doesn't win with, with some ease. What do you think, Brent? Yeah, I mean, I, I think Ryan's points are, are spot on, and I agree with you if you can get out of the gate. I mean, a year ago, Tennessee had a chance to really put the hurt on Pitt early in the first half. A missed opportunities. Joe Milton missed a couple of, of deep balls that would have been touchdowns. Uh, Tennessee was first in goal in the second quarter. And Cade Mays got a um, unsportsmanlike penalty for diving on a pile. They go from inside the 10-yard line, pushes them back out 15 yards. They end up having to settle for a field goal. Big momentum shift in the game there for for Tennessee at 13 penalties. There were a lot of things Tennessee did wrong a year ago and and still had a chance to win that football game late. Here's the other thing, too. Josh Heupel and Pat Narduzzi are going after each other for the fourth consecutive year which is unusual in non-conference games. You don't see that happen very often, just the way the schedule fell. Pat Narduzzi's never held a Josh Heupel offense under 31 points. Hmm. Um, and, and two of those have been losses. They've just outscored. Pitt's been able to outscore because of a, in large part because of a guy named Kenny Pickett. Mm-hmm. And you're right, they don't have Kenny Pickett now. So if Tennessee's offense can be you know, 35 points in this game, I, I'm not sure if Pitt can match at that point production based on what we saw in week one. Now, Narduzzi has totally challenged his team. He called them out, basically called them soft in the line of scrimmage coming out of the backyard brawl. How do they respond to that this week? How much more physical do they play this week than they did a week ago against West Virginia? Interesting. Are you surprised that uh, you had you had a really great podcast with Jackie Sherrill this week um, that I highly encourage uh, folks to go check out? And this kind of reminded me of with the Johnny Majors Classic. Were you surprised that Tennessee didn't just do the layup and do the orange pants uh, on the road at Pitt? Like with how smart they've been about their uniforms and prioritizing this kind of stuff, were you surprised that they didn't do the orange pants? I am because Coach Majors love the orange pants, mm-hmm. but the, but the uniform thing is a player council vote, hmm. and no offense to those players and no offense to Coach Majors, they don't know those players don't know who Johnny Majors is. I mean, they they can. They can get a history lesson about what he did at Tennessee, but but they don't know the history, mm. uh, and and they shouldn't. It's not it's not their fault. They love those stormtroopers, or I guess they call them ice <laughs> yeah. whites now, or whatever they call them. That that's that's a favorite uniform of, of that team, and, and so that's a player council vote on what they want to wear, and, and that's why they ended up with with the white uniforms. But uh, I was a little surprised because. You know, Tennessee did not wear orange pants for years under Coach mm-hmm. Fulmer. Ryan, Co- Coach Fulmer did not like the orange pants because John Majors, like Johnny Majors, liked the orange pants. So that's why he didn't. Was wear that the orange reason? Pants. That's the biggest reason why he didn't wear orange pants. He rarely wore them 
Um, you know, just very, very rarely. He, he always wore white pants. Coach Majors loved the orange pants on the road. That was, I mean, he just absolutely loved that uniform. So uh, a little hmm. surprised, but again, it was a player vote thing. And I think at this point, you, in, in the day and age we're living in and with student athletes now, that they got a lot of power on a lot of things. And I think if you're a coach and that's what they want to wear, you're going to, you're going to go, okay, that, let's, let's go wear them. If that, if that makes you play better, let's go wear that uniform. And that's, that's why they're in the icy whites. Wait, is there like a straw poll? Like, how does this work when you, the player council on this, are they just like pulling straws on like what uniform we're going? How does that work? I would say that it's the guys who are the most vocal and okay. have the most, uh, and have the most locker room credibility, probably carry the largest vote, you know, uh-huh. and say, Hey, this is what we're going to wear. And, most of those guys probably agree. Again, I, I mean, if you get in that locker room, and, and Ryan, you know this talk of those players, you get in there and say, hey, do you, do you like the all-white uniform on the road? They're going to go, yeah, let's wear that. That's the uniform mm-hmm. we want to wear because they love that uniform. Baseball guys are like this too, right, Ryan? Yeah. I mean, they're, you know, yeah. They, they got about seven combinations, <laughs> but there's, there's a couple that they like, and they gravitate to those couple whenever they can. Yeah, we didn't see the pinstripes in baseball. Maybe more than two or three games last year. Uh, they've they've kind of uh, that one's gone down the list, and, and especially which hurts me because I love the pinstripe. I know, I love I that uniform. <laughs> Wait, yeah. you put? Do you have that above the the cream though? The cream's number one, right? Like we all universally look at cream number one, right? Cream's number one, but I like the the pinstripes more than the I guess the, the icy whites too with baseball. Yeah, I would agree with that. Grip across the front. They they like to wear those on homes. Uh, on the home series, I think Friday nights instead of I kind of replace the uh, the pinstripes. So the pinstripes are gone. Like we might not see them at all next year. I mean, they have the uniforms, but the point, players are just never going to vote to put them on. So many uniforms, and they don't. You play four games a week, and you know, really only three games that really matter in the weekend. And they kind of have their their set that they're going to go with at home and on the road. And pinstripes are not not in that mix. Man, I have I've kind of blocked out the Tuesday uh coverage of the tennessee baseball season but the weirdest thing in college baseball is the tuesday game like we just we don't need it let's get rid of this the tuesday game where i'm just sitting on my couch if i don't want to go to the game and i'm just like why am i taking notes on tennessee belmont on a tuesday spring afternoon let me go do something else um what are we doing here uh ryan when you look at the matchup here though what is the most intriguing? Is it something with Brew McCoy? Is it just how many receivers uh, get snaps and what kind of snap counts they're going to be on against Pitt? What is the most intriguing element that Tennessee is going to throw at Pitt uh, that you're going to you're going to focus on on Saturday? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily something that's going to be massive just specifically in this Pitt game, but for o- over the course of the season, I'm just interested to see does Tennessee keep playing so many guys on defense early and especially those young guys i mean you saw elijah herring josh joseph's second drive of the game uh, against ball state and you know they talked all fall camp about how much better depth they had on defense and now they're going to play more guys but to see those freshmen get those opportunities as early as they did uh, i didn't expect myself so that's probably maybe the number one thing that it's easy to do that against ball state especially get an interception on your first play of the game and a touchdown on the second play of the game you can give those guys opportunities Uh, i'm going to be curious to see if one, if they get those opportunities early uh, against Pitt, and if they do get those opportunities early, does that persist if this thing's a game into the second half? What do you think, Brent? I think for me, it's it's about the left tackle position and how do they hold up against Pitt's pass rush, um, particularly on third down. I was and I knew that that Ball State dropped eight, you know, and rushed three pretty much the whole game. Upon rewatch, uh, I'll be honest with you, part of the second half of the rewatch, I got 
I got a little lost in, in some <laughs> other things while it was mm -hmm. on. I probably didn't take as detailed notes as I should have in, in the rewatch. So I, I didn't realize this, but, but Jabari Spall said, you know, I didn't have a pass pro set in the game. I, I didn't, I didn't stay in to block anybody because mm -hmm. there was not there. That's not going to be the case on Saturday. Uh, there's going to be uh, pressure coming. So how does Gerald Mincy handle that? What's Tennessee's answer? There, to what, how much do they have to help Gerald Mincy? Do they have to keep a tight end, you know, in, in the in the in the box to block to, to help Mincy? Does he chip on the way out in a pass route? Is it going to be on the running back to handle that pass pro, or does Gerald Mincy and JJ Crawford handle it itself? If Tennessee can block them up front with their five, holy smokes, Josh Heupel may have everybody running wide open down the, down the field if they can do that. My guess is they're going to have to max protect some particularly in third and medium situations or third and long situations. So how do those guys handle that? I think that's a matchup within the matchup. I think Ryan's point's a great point. It's easy to play all those guys in a blowout game. And in a game where you know after the second play, all right, this is over. We're not we're not going to be tested here. Do you, in a, in a much-needed drive where you've got to have a stop, are you willing to play Elijah Herring in that third down package? You know, do you trust him enough to go out there and do that? Or is it going to be kind of the, eh, wait a minute, let, let's, let's, let's keep our regular regulars on the field and see if we can get off the field that way. Th that'll be another storyline, certainly, to watch on the defensive side of the ball. Interesting. Um, do you look at, <laughs> this is something that uh, I think, this has been a kind of not a running joke, but just something that I think now every Tennessee podcast notes for the last year and a half. And I feel bad for the kid at this point with Warren Burrell, where uh, me just sitting in the group chat with the the, the Purdue game last uh, last December and just being like, oh, goodness, They're, they figured it out. Warren Burrell is on the scouting report. And it seems like all week, every week, there is like a disconnect between how the coaches see Warren Burrell and how the fans and analysts see Warren Burrell. Like, when you look at this game, is this the one where we have to look at it and like maybe things change? Do you think the coaches really do believe that Warren Burrell is doing a good job or are they trying to just hype him up and increase confidence? Because I know you guys talked about that this week is it's kind of a confidence thing, Warren Burrell. And if you watch the way Kamal Haddon plays corner versus the way Warren Burrell plays corner, it's night and day. Um, and Kamal, hopefully we get uh, more snaps this week than the 16 that we saw last week. I guess that's an injury thing. Um are you a believer in Warren Burrell going into this year? And are you a believer this week, excuse me. And are you a believer that the coaching staff really does see something and thinks he's fine? Uh, you know, I, I think the staff does believe in him. I mean, mm -hmm. listen, you got a lot of money on the line, right? I mean, you're paid to win football games. You're not paid to win to play seniors. Okay. You're not, you're not getting paid to play um, somebody who's got the most experience. You're paid to play your most talented guys. So um we're living, I mean, if, if they're playing a guy and, and there's more talented guys sitting on the sidelines who are capable of playing, then you got a whole different topic and a whole different issue there. So I do think they believe in Warren Burrell. I do think Warren Burrell's confidence gets shaken. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, I was talking to Jonathan Wade earlier this week on a show we did uh, on VolQuest, and he said, you know, Larry Slade told him one time, Jonathan, it just takes one play, one play to get you going in the right way, and, and we'll see if Warren can get that. But, Ryan, I don't think there's any doubt that when Pitt handed out their scouting report to the offensive guys this week and they, and they gave it to Slovis, the one thing they said was, see where number four is at. And if we get mm. if we get a one-on-one -on -one matchup out there, let's go try to attack it because everybody has been doing that for, for multiple games now going back to last year. Yeah, I think it also just goes to what does Tennessee have there? I think he's certainly their best option. You know, he's not perfect. I mean, I'm a big Christian Charles fan, but I think 
his debut was underwhelming at times and some of the things he did and as great as hadn't played. I mean, those are, those are your three guys. I mean, I'm not sure even if D Williams was healthy, uh, he would necessarily be in that group, but he's not, and he's the fourth guy. So that's the three guys you got to roll with. Christian Charles is playing his first college games at corner. It's a new experience for him. Really. He got a little bit of playing time early in the year last year. I think got to start maybe in that Missouri game before getting injured, but it's, it's a new, new situation for him too. And when you have three guys and one of them is in a new spot and hasn't been great in his debut, I don't know that there really is a better option than number four opposite of Patton. Yeah, and you don't want to you don't want to kill you don't want to kill Warren Warren Burrell's confidence anymore either, right? I mean, you go, yeah. you know, it's it's like you take a guy who's struggling in the batting lineup, you can bump him down in the lineup, mm-hmm. but if you set him, you, you know, it may be a while before you get him back, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you just need to keep going with reps and. Um, you know, you're an injury away. That's your only, you know, he would be your only option if somebody else got hurt right now, because, um, they're, they're just, they're still thin there. Their depth is better, but their depth's not great at that position. And, and they were limited last week. I mean, they, you know, they did not have many options out there. So I think you got to be real careful too, about just absolutely killing a kid's confidence whose confidence may already be shaken, but by, by, you know, just tossing him aside the way a lot of fans want him to be tossed aside. Now, I'm for playing Haddon more than 16 snaps. I can rotate him either side, right? Mm. Play a three-man rotation there. I'm so I'm I'm totally good with that. Um, you know, if he's healthy enough to go, but I don't think you mothball one of those guys, but because you just don't have enough depth otherwise. Do we see Juwan Mitchell this weekend? I don't think so, Ryan. You may okay. have a different opinion, but but if I if I were a betting man, I'm not I'm not losing my money on that one. So I, I would be I would be surprised if he's available this weekend. I'm gonna have to see Juwan Mitchell on the field before I'm I'm confident Juwan Mitchell's gonna be on the field. That's interesting. Are we? Do we know what's going on there? Is there rumblings? Is there stuff that we have to talk about off air? What's going on there? Like, is Juwan? It, it's not injury though, correct? Like, this is not injury related. Josh Heupel's been very coy about it. He, yeah. He's not given any any insight. Um, he was very noncommittal about him being available to play, even right after the Ball State game in his postgame mm-hmm. press conference, and has been that way all week. Uh, and, and talking to people, I believe you're going to see Jawan Mitchell before the end of September. I, I do think okay. you'll see him play this month. I'm just not sure that it's going to be on Saturday. I'm kind of with Ryan. I, I've got to hmm. I got to see him out there to to, to know that he's going to be out there. So. Uh, we'll see what happens, um, you know, this weekend. And then obviously more eyes will be on him. I think the rest of the month. Um, Ryan, do you think we see more Joshua Josephs where we, he really popped a little bit in week one. And if the pass rush is not there, do they go young? Do they go like, well, Hey, like, yeah, Tyler Barron and Byron Young, like we'll give you a bunch of snaps, but do you think quicker than some fans might anticipate where it's like you just got to get the best player on the field and if he's uh like as a true freshman he is that kind of mover maybe you just have to play him more it might upset some feelings but do you think we see him sooner rather than later in a bigger role yeah i think you do because he had a pretty big role in game one and he's obviously extremely talented and he provides something that you know tennessee's defense i'm gonna say is completely missing but they were missing last year and we obviously we had plenty of talk about it on the podcast last week about the pass rush. And it mm. certainly you know, didn't have the game that it wanted to. And there's a bunch of different factors that go into that week one. So I think you're right. You know, what do we see from him on Saturday? I think that kind of depends in a lot of situations. Can Tennessee get Pitt in the third and long? To me, that's another big key in this game. Looking at this game, a lot of it reminds me of maybe the Kentucky game last year where I think Tennessee's mm. offense and its passing game is going to have 
more than Pitt's defense can handle. But at the same time, uh, this Pitt offense, I think it's going to be able to stay ahead of the sticks and get itself into a lot of third and manageable. Can Tennessee get it in the third and long, get Pittsburgh in the third and long? Can they get themselves in a lot of situations where you want to get your pass, best pass rush unit out there? And I think if that's the case, Joseph's, he might not be in that best pass rush unit right now, but I think that's going to lead to him getting more opportunities. Remember this too, Pitt's got, Pitt's banged up at right tackle. And we'll hmm. see how, how, where they end up going at right tackle. They're, they're pretty beat up there. They could be in a second team guy. They could even be in a walk on situation in their too deep depth, too deep depth chart at right tackle. If that's the case, then you might even be a little more comfortable playing a Joshua Joseph, who's got a great explosive first step against a more inexperienced guy versus a guy who's a senior who's kind of seen all varieties of pass rushers out there. So uh, that that's another story kind of to keep an eye on too when you look at at Pitts you know, personnel, what are they, where are they at the right tackle position this week and how effective can they be there? Brent, uh, last thing on Pitt, uh, if you had to guess which receivers we saw last week in the Ball State game, we do not see this week even get a snap in the pick game. Who do you think is left out? Oh, I, you know, I still think that, that Jimmy Calloway is a guy that's maddening to, to everybody mm. over there because I think they all feel like he is as talented, if not the most talented guy but it's just woefully inconsistent. Hmm. Um, and, and until he until he grasps and until he plays with some consistency, whether that's effort, whether that's mental bus, whether that's all those things in between, I just don't know that how much of a trust factor there is with, with him right now. And um, until he earns their trust on the practice field each and every day, that's the guy who snaps maybe that's the guy who may have a hard time finding snaps when you look at the, all the guys that they played. Uh, last week. I think Jimmy Holiday is a good player. I think he's limited, though. I don't think he's got great wiggle. He's got some mm. speed, but he doesn't have a great wiggle. Walker Merrill's gotten better and better. I, I think, Ryan, this is a Brew McCoy game. I, I just I, I mm. like I like the matchup with Brew McCoy here one-on-one because Pitt's going to play press man on the corners. I, I think this fits Brew McCoy's style really well. I, I think this is a chance for him to have a big game on Saturday. Yeah, I like the Jimmy Callaway answer, and you know, I've been on his his uh, bandwagon for a while, and it just doesn't seem, you know, at this point in the season or even this year at all, that it's going to be a major role from him. And I think that's probably pretty clear when was Squirrel White was getting opportunities earlier than he was last week. But you know, when you look at guys maybe played a big role last week, I, I like Holiday, maybe Ramel Keaton too. It's just in a game like this, I agree with Brent. I think this is a game that fits well for Brew McCoy, and in a game like this, I. I have a hard time seeing Tennessee taking Cedric Tillman off the field for a lot of plays. Uh, it's it's just when, they, again, they talked about it in the preseason. They want to play more guys at receiver. They feel better playing more guys at receiver than they did at the start of the year last year. But when you get in the big game, uh, you're going to want number four on the field. And I think if Brew McCoy earns more trust, it's going to kind of be the same way with him. Uh, I think those guys, those three starters are probably pretty clearly Tennessee's three best receivers right now in a game like this. I'll be interested to see what the rotation is, but I just would be surprised if it's nearly the size that it was last week or really even the size that they talked about in preseason camp. Yep, because they were totally comfortable playing three last year. I mean, they yeah. just yep. basically said after the Florida game, guys, I got three people I can trust. Eat your Wheaties, take the playoff <laughs> here and there if it's not coming to your side, and and, and stay fresh as you can because that's who we're going to roll with. So uh, I, I think they're comfortable if that's what they have to do. They'll go deeper than three. But mm -hmm. I don't see them playing six, seven wide receivers, a whole bunch of snaps here. I, I, I just – I will be surprised if that happens. Interesting. Uh, Ryan, your score prediction for this one, what is your final score prediction going into this weekend? 
Yeah, I, I've even already written my prediction on the site, and we haven't posted it. You'll go out tomorrow morning, but I for, I've forgotten what it is. But it, it's some Tennessee 41, Pitt 35, something like that. I think it's going to be a high-scoring game. I think Tennessee wins by right around where that line is. So Pitt covers down. for you. Yeah, I guess, yeah, Pitt covers for me in that case. I, again, I think it's right at the line. I don't really like either side of the bet much. I liked it a lot more when it was three and a half or four what it opened at uh, last weekend. But, no, I think Tennessee gets this done, and I just think this is a game that Tennessee's offense and firepower is just going to be a little too much for a Pitt team without Jordan Addison, without Kenny Pickett uh, to really sustain. What do you think, Brent? Well, we'll roll ours out on Friday as well uh, with, with the pick, but I, I, I like Tennessee's positioning here. I think this game's in the 30s. Uh, huh. I don't, I'm not sure either team gets to the 40-point mark. If Tennessee hits 40 points, then I, I think they cover and, and they're going to win you know, pretty nicely. But, but I, I think this is going to be a – right on the line of the over-under in terms of total points and right on the line uh, of the um, – of, of where the – you know, where Tennessee is as a six – I guess six-and-a-half point kind of where it's hovering at right now. So, I think I've got it somewhere like 38, 31, 35, 31. I'm kind of in that ballpark. We'll see how I kind of finish it out. I've got to finish writing that, to be honest with you. I'm not completely done with it. But I, I do like Tennessee. And part of the reason why I like Tennessee, and I've said this all week, is and each, you know, each year, each team is different. I get that. But I just go back to what Tennessee did a year ago in their second game where they were still trying to figure out tempo and still trying to figure out what Tim Banks wanted. And they're still trying to figure out how to prepare for a game. And they had every opportunity to really handle Pittsburgh at, at home. Uh, and, and they didn't get it done. And that was a Pittsburgh team that won the conference championship. And uh, but but there were so many self-inflicted wounds from Tennessee a year ago prevented them from winning it. I just don't think Tennessee will play that dirty of football this year. I think it'll be a cleaner game, and I think if it is a cleaner game, I like where Tennessee's at right now in this matchup. I'm at the point where I think <laughs> – I mean, I have 45-24 Tennessee. People well, are very scared. People are scared of just saying Tennessee's going to blow out some good teams and Tennessee's – all. Tennessee was the only Power 5 school in the top 10 in scoring offense last year not to win 10 games. That was it. Like every other power five school that won 10 games that had, were in the top 10 won 10 games. Tennessee is going to be in the top 10 again in scoring offense. If that is the case, can lightning strike twice and this team not win 10 games and just break that mold because of just where they're at defensively? I just, I think people just have to like kind of embrace it. Tennessee fans, you're not going to get hurt right now. If the hurt comes, it's Florida. Week four. Like, like let's wait for Florida and the Smoky Grays and what that looks like. It's not Pitt. And they should have beat this Pitt team last year. I think this Pitt team's worse. It's not going to be that close. I really think this is a 17-0, 17-7 after the first quarter, Tennessee. And Pitt gets antsy. Some uh, mistakes are made by Keaton Slovis, who I'm not a believer in whatsoever. He is not Kenny Pickett. He's not going in the first round of the NFL draft next year. I saw a lot of Keaton Slovis at uh, USC. It's just not going to happen. Like you, like Pitt's going to get blown out in this game. Embrace it. Pat Narduzzi, when you're turning your back on fun offense and you spend a whole offseason throwing your XOC under the bus for getting you 10 wins and being in that top 10 in offense, like throwing them under the bus and just going the opposite way and pivoting in the current era of college football. No, none of that speaks to just uh, a successful season for me. I think this is crazy that we don't talk about this more is that he's pivoting backwards and he's like i'd rather lose doing what i want to do and making that team hurt like i want the post-game presser like look man 
we got blown out, but I will take this kind of loss against Tennessee versus the crap that we had to do to beat Tennessee last year every day of the week. I need Pat Narduzzi to say that. I'd rather lose my way than win that with the way we won last year. That's where I just feel this is going. That's that's my take. Pat Narduzzi uh, was a is a big time Jeff Fisher move. Yes, we're going to win twenty to seventeen. We may win twenty four to twenty one, but we're not going to score thirty points. Yeah, I mean that was. I don't know if it was wild. I mean, it was slightly wild that he wanted to go in the opposite direction. It was absolutely wild that he threw a whipple under the bus uh, this yeah. offseason like he did. Um, but yeah, I mean, Chase, if you're going to say it, I mean, I'm going to tell everybody I know. Vols first quarter, Vols first half, Vols team over, Vols spread uh, and let it pay the. Let, let we pay are the best first quarter team in the country. Like Georgia fans around me in the building last fall. Where I told them, I was like, Georgia's going to be down at the first quarter. Laughed in my face all around me. And I was like, Georgia's going to be down. Like, I have the 17 points on Georgia, the national championship banner, somewhere in my office. Like, raise the banner. Like, Tennessee was going to do that. Tennessee is going to be up on whoever they needed to be up on in the first quarter. The tempo will always catch these teams off guard. And certain teams can bounce back, like the Kentucky comparison. They bounce back. Like, first play from scrimmage. Tennessee scored a touchdown in the first play. The camera wasn't even ready. Like, we didn't even, we'll, we'll never know what happened with those first six seconds of uh, the long touchdown run by, uh, was it Peyton? Uh, that was yeah. Peyton, right? It was a patented uh, Javante Peyton first, first quarter touchdown. Not yeah. To catch after the rest of the game. Exactly that was right. his bread and butter, man. He had just as many, when you give him the ball, it's a TD or absolutely nothing. That was, uh, that was his go to. Those first 15 scripted plays are pretty yeah. good that Josh Heupel has. I mean, and I know it's not hard script. He's just got concepts he wants to get to. Uh, but they do – this staff does a really good job scouting their opponent and finding something they can attack them with early in a game. And um, I think there will be a lot of people surprised if they don't find something to attack Pitt with early in the game. Uh, because they've had they've been good against Narduzzi in the first quarter in mm-hmm. all four matchups. They haven't finished a couple of games the way they needed to. Uh, the one that they lost at Pittsburgh, they had an opportunity there and gave it away with a turnover late. And then obviously what happened last year. So um, they've they, they've been a really good first half team and a really good first quarter team against Narduzzi. So we'll see what Josh Heupel's um, concocted up in the in the old witchcraft room this week with, with, with his scheme because he'll have something for him for sure. Death, taxes, Tennessee, and Josh Heupel in the first quarter. Uh, just embrace it, Vols fans. It's part of our nature. Uh, before we go, Brent, your favorite forum thread on VolQuest of all time is what? Uh, guys, it's true. The night Lane Kiffin left town. Um, okay. I'm playing shoots and ladders in the floor with my kid, who was uh-huh. four at the time. Okay. My wife was uh, shopping at Kohl's. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I got I got beat on the story. I mean, it shouldn't be my favorite post, but it is. But I, I got beat on the story because Chris Lowe had it. And um, I get a call that it's happening. I look on the ticker. It scrolls across the bottom. I literally like, okay, what am I going to do with my kid? Where's mm. my wife? Thankfully, she was about two minutes away. I grab my phone. I post, guys, it's true, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> then I say I'm heading to campus. She walks in the door. I said, he's yours for bath time. Good luck. I'm out. And <laughs> I went to campus and I came home at 6:45 a.m. Uh, the next morning. I spent all night on campus, and um, that will long go down as the post that started it all that night, and the one everybody on VolQuest recognizes. That's why when I posted my farewell on uh, VolQuest last week, and or on on the Rivals page last week, that's why I posted 
the headline was guys it's true because uh it's been a running it's been a running joke it'll been a running conversation on that message board for over a decade now goodness gracious what a time what a time to be alive um brent how do the good folks check out where you're at now at uh volquest on on three what can they go look out for you this week and uh, deals how to how to support and get involved Sure. Uh, it's volquest.com and that'll take you right to the page. You can sign up. We've got a great offer going right now. It's a dollar for the entire year. You get 12 months for a buck. And um, so all you college kids out there listening, you got a dollar somewhere, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's two trips to the Coke machine somewhere on campus. So, um, or a trip and a half, I guess, with, with what vending machines are now. So for, for a dollar, you can check it out. Uh, we've got tons of coverage to get you ready, just like Ryan and them do at, at RTI as well. We'll have our predictions. Uh, I'll do my 10 things I think I think, which kind of looks at in depth at some of the matchup stuff uh, coming up. Uh, that'll be on Friday. And we'll finish out our ser- podcast series on John Majors uh, tomorrow as well. And then um, I'll have the cheat sheet on Saturday morning with final thoughts and, and final matchup things to keep an eye on in the game. And then we'll have our VFL Players Lounge, which is a video podcast with Eric Kane that he's doing with Jonathan Wade and Ramon Foster, a – there you go. A Pittsburgh Steeler yep. mainstay, legend mm-hmm. in the in the Steel City. Uh, he gives a little <laughs> insight into what life is like in the Steel City, and obviously uh, preparations for Tennessee there. So that's coming up on Saturday. Lots of stuff, and again, you can check us out. Real simple, VolQuest.com. You can get all the latest happenings and get, take advantage of that great deal. There you go, Ryan. What about you over at RTI uh, this week? Yeah, much of the same. Getting ready, uh, getting ready for a big game. We'll have three keys uh, tomorrow. Had a ton of stuff all week, kind of looking at some of the injury stuff. Talked to Noah Hiles at the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. He kind of previewed the game from the pit point of view for us and uh, game predictions as well. And uh, both myself and Rick Butler will be in Pittsburgh, get full coverage uh, all weekend long. What is the drive like? What is the drive from Knoxville to Pitt? About eight hours, I think. Oof. Okay. Eight hours there and back. All right. Brent, are you driving too or are you on the private jet? I'm not on the private jet. You're not I on am, the charter now? I am okay. in the air. I am in the air. I am going to... Um, I, I'm going to be flying. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure my, I, I'm not sure I can handle eight hours <laughs> in a car right now, to be honest with you. So I'm, uh, uh I, I'm managing through a broken hip. So how is um, that, by the way, you had the surgery and you're right back in like, yeah, we're, we're doing good, but riding in a car for eight hours is not good. So, uh, we're, we're gonna, we'll fly up there and, and take care of that. And then we'll be back on Sunday for, for all of our coverage. And, uh, like Ryan, I mean, we're, you know, it's Tennessee football, right? Yeah. I mean, you can't give everybody enough. So you just try to give them everything that you can physically get done in a 24 hour day. And then you go to bed, get up and start giving them something else the next day. So that's what we're going to try to do. There you go. Day at a time, gentlemen, day at a time. And uh, balls by 90 uh, at Pitt this weekend. There you go. <laughs> uh, Ryan, Brent, thank you as always. And uh, Brent, we'll have to have you back on again soon. Yeah, anytime. Love to. Appreciate it, guys. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.